Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to episode 14 of From Page to Practice. I hope you're all well. Sorry about the extra delay between episodes. I decided to skip an episode in order to make sure that what I'm putting together for you is as relevant as it possibly can be. That's why I'm pleased to be bringing you this particular book today. I don't think there could be anything more relevant, especially this weekend where certain prominent figures have made their views on remote teaching very unhelpfully clear. So without further ado, here to talk about her book, Teachers vs Tech, is Daisy Christodoulou. I wrote Teachers vs Tech because I'm really interested in how technology can improve learning and I think technology has enormous potential to improve education. However, I was also really disappointed by the way in which edtech really seems to be quite susceptible to a lot of fads and a lot of pseudoscience. So the aim of the book is really to just separate out the worthwhile edtech approaches from the ones that are a bit more faddish. There have been a lot of problems and a lot of, a lot of projects haven't worked, big technology projects haven't worked in the past. So my aim of the book is I hope that Uh, If you read it, it will give you a guide to why some things work, why other things don't, and what the best kind of projects to take on might be. So the book's aimed at anyone who's interested in improving the way we learn. Uh, Teachers, people involved in ed tech, anyone involved in designing resources, um, and even students who are interested in in improving the way they learn and, and, and learning more about how they can enhance that. So I wrote the book before uh, the, the current coronavirus pandemic. I'd like to think that some of the uh, principles I talk about are going to be useful to, to schools now. Obviously, a lot of what schools and teachers are doing now is kind of emergency remote learning. And the real focus is on just getting stuff out there. But I'm still hopeful that there's some some basic principles in the book that will, will help people and, and won't be uh, too effortful, but will still give them a guide to the kind of online learning that does and doesn't work. Uh, for example, in chapter three, I spend quite a bit of time talking about designing good online content and why you can't just really you know go onto the internet and and pick up whatever's there and 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 what the the best kind of design principles are and one of the the books I look at a lot is uh, the the Cambridge Handbook to Multimedia Learning which is edited by Richard Mayer and is this really comprehensive guide to designing online resources so I summarize some of those principles one of the things Mayer talks about a lot is how when you're designing an online resource you want to avoid distraction. That seems pretty obvious, but the way that distraction works with, with multimedia lessons, with online lessons, it's often very different from, from when you're in a physical classroom. So, for example, if you are designing a video lesson, there's no real need to have your, your image or a talking head of you uh, on, on the video. It is okay just to share slides, and in fact, a lot of really successful uh, video, video lessons uh, do just that. So the Khan Academy, for example, uh, Hegarty Maths, they've all got the voice of the teacher, but but not their face. And the teacher is speaking to a set of slides, which is often shown a worked example. Um, and another thing Mayor talks about is the, the split attention effect. This holds in a physical classroom, but 
particular problem it can be in, in online lessons. And so the split attention is just about how you have to work harder um, and it can be, be distracting if you've got to integrate different sources of information. So as much as possible, you want to try and integrate uh, an image and voice uh, and not have them kind of competing, competing against each other. So that's some principles about, about designing content. Uh, another principle I talk about a lot, which I'm, I'm really excited about and I think is, is really important and is a classic example of, of how you can use technology in ways that you, you just can't really replicate uh, offline, is spaced repetition. So we've known about the principle of spaced repetition for years, for, uh, since the late 19th century, really. And it's this idea that if you want to remember something for the long term, uh, you're better off. You don't want to cram, cram your revision into a, a small period of time. You need to space it out. And if you space it out, so say you want to learn maybe a set of uh, 100, 100 foreign vocabulary words, instead of uh, cramming all that study into a week, you would space it out. You might do uh, one day, then you come back a couple of days later, then you come back a week later, then a month later. And if you space out your repetition like that, it makes it much easier to get those, those new vocabulary words into your long-term memory. And as I say, we've known about space repetition for a while. It's incredibly powerful. The research base point is really solid, but it's never really kind of taken off practically. And I think maybe one of the reasons for that is it can be quite fiddly to implement because it's quite difficult to know exactly how much you should be spacing everything out and uh, to come up with a system that lets you do that easily. And again, that is where the technology comes in. So there's quite a few flashcard apps now which just have a spaced repetition algorithm backing them up. So you just put in what you want to learn and they will kind of dish it up to you uh, at the relevant intervals. And it's also pretty simple to, to personalise, uh, do some basic personalisation with a system like this because what you can do is... Every time you get a question wrong, it will kind of bring that flashcard to the, to the front of the deck and it will, it will start it again on the cycle. Um, so very quickly, you end up with a flashcard deck that's personalised to you. And when it comes to personalisation, you can use technology to personalise not just with sets of flashcards, but also in other ways too. And actually, personalisation is something I discuss at length in the book in a whole chapter, chapter two. I talk about different types of personalisation. And... This is one of the reasons it's often put forward as to why education technology can be so powerful. You'll hear people say, well, look, you can have your own personalised Spotify playlist. You've got your own personalised Netflix recommendations. You've got your personalised Amazon uh, book recommendations. If we can tailor all, all, all these things to an individual's preferences, why can't we do the same with education? Why is it in education that we are stuck with 30 children in a classroom, one size fits all? And in chapter two, I look at some of the arguments for and against personalisation and not just some of the arguments for and against it, but actually the fact that personalisation is a really slippery concept because it has many, many different interpretations. And in this chapter, I look at three different interpretations specifically. So uh, and two of them, I say, are really problematic and ineffective, whereas one I think does have potential. So the two that are ineffective, I think it really worries me that a lot of the interpretations of personalisation at the moment are based on personalising instruction based on a student's learning style. And the reason that's problematic is we know with vast amounts of research that learning styles don't exist. So that's a problem that one of the, the major ways people are talking about personalising education is to do so on the basis of non-existent learning styles. The other one that worries me is when people say we should personalise based on stu student choice. 
Now, in some ways, this can start off sounding kind of quite innocuous. You'll get people saying, well, look, wouldn't it be nice if students can control the pace with which they move through a lesson? Oh, wouldn't it be, would it be nice if they can just repeat some parts of it? And so you start off thinking, well, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good idea. But when you get into the, 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 the real student choice of students being able to, to kind of pick and choose anything they like about a lesson, the problem you get is that novices are often not very good at making decisions about their own learning. And very often our students, by definition, are novices. So whilst there's some aspects of this type of personalisation which can sound really sensible, actually it's it, to be handing over all of the choices about the lesson to the student does does bring up bring up issues. Um, and then the final type of personalisation I talk about, which I've 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 got more sympathy and more time for, is uh, what I was talking about before with the flashcards. So the kind of personalisation where it's not the student choosing the, uh, what, what to study or choosing how things should adapt for them but it's where you've got a system that's doing that so you've got a system that's um, monitoring how the student's doing that's monitoring the answers they're putting in whether they're getting things right or wrong how much time they're spending studying and the system is then updating what the student sees based on all of that information and that kind of personalization that kind of adaptive personalization I think there's there's real promise there and I talk about a few systems in, in that chapter which which you, you can use and which show that promise. And as I say, at its simplest, you can have a, a flashcard app, which is, is doing that, uh, as long as it's updating based on the, the flashcards you're getting right and wrong. So that's chapter two, personalisation. And then just a, a couple of other things I'll uh, uh, briefly touch on that I talk about in the book. Uh, in chapter five, I talk about the, the issue of attention. And I think this is a really overlooked topic in education technology. And the issue is that we know attention is the currency of learning. In order to learn something, you have to pay attention to it. But we are also living in a modern internet economy where a lot of the devices we use to access the internet, particularly mobile phones, they're really attention traps. And the modern internet economy, so many of the big companies within it are built on advertising and their systems are built on really trying to capture our attention for advertisers. So I think this is a problem if you want students to be learning whilst they're on some of these devices, you have to remember that a lot of these devices are engineered to be capturing your attention. And this isn't just a problem for students. It's even just a problem for adults. I think it's a problem actually for our entire society. And I think that uh, a lot of the ideas that are being kicked around politically now about how you regulate technology companies, these are some of the issues that are at the heart of them uh, as well. Uh, some of these business models, which uh, are essentially capturing your attention um, in return for, for some kind of service. So that's why, even though I think there is enormous potential for, for education technology, we've got to be really careful about the devices that we use, um, how, how students are accessing those. And we should think about app blockers, internet blockers, way that you can limit, limit students' um, access to the internet. And that's not just about students. One of the things I talk about in this chapter is that a, a lot of adults whose, whose, whose jobs depend on them being able to concentrate and focus really hard are turning to to apps like this too. So as I say, I think this is a, a long-term issue. And I think in the context of coronavirus, it's it's even more important too, because we're quite rightly uh, wanting to to get students without access to devices to get them that access so they can um, stay, stay in contact with their teachers and schools. But we also have to remember the other side of that. That's not going to go away uh, either. We have to remember um, how do we make sure that when they've got those devices, they are able to focus on what's important on them. And then... Uh, in chapter seven, uh, another sort of interesting practical case study of, of how you can use technology. I talk about assessment 
and I talk about some of the, the traditional challenges with assessment, some of the problems that uh, you have with bias, some of the problems you have with accuracy, uh, some of the problems you have with <clears throat> can be quite time consuming. And in chapter seven, I talk about comparative judgment, which is really a, a way of using technology to help improve assessment of writing tasks. And what's interesting about comparative judgment is it does at its heart have human judgment. So it's not, you have some forms of assessment which have a kind of a computer-based judgment at their heart. Um, and when it comes to computers making judgment of open task for essays, they don't have a great track record. The interesting thing about comparative judgment is it involves lots of human judgments. So it's all about human judgment. But what the, the technology is doing is it's aggregating those human judgments. It's combining them using an, an algorithm. And it's using that algorithm and those uh, the aggregation of all those judgments to come up with more reliable uh, results than you would get from traditional assessment. So full disclosure, I work for an organisation, No More Marking. Um, we deliver online comparative judgment uh, assessments. Um, but uh, I do think I, I, one of the reasons I love comparative judgment and think it's uh, amazing is it's a really nice blend of the human and the computer. So it's a really good blend of the human strengths, um, human strengths of, 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 of understanding and appreciating quality writing, but computer strengths have been able to crunch through uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of decisions very, very quickly. So for me, that's an, a nice case study of the of of of, of human and technology strengths working together really well. And I think that's, again, one of the messages of the book. How can we find a way in which we can use the strength of technology, the strength of humans? We need them both. Uh, they both have things to offer. How can we design systems and design methods of education to give us the, the best of both worlds? So I know we're in a, a really difficult time at the moment and a lot of what we're doing is, is really just about emergency remote learning and getting things out there as quickly as possible. But I'm hopeful that, that, that even so we might start to uh, spark some new ideas for, for how we might start to design that system of the future too. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. I have to say I really enjoy the look and feel of this book. The use of colour, the chapter headings, the summaries are just really nice and they add to the quality of the content that's within the book. One of the things I found interesting was Daisy's point about it not being necessary to have your face visible, just talking over slides can be sufficient or even better. This is comforting as it's exactly what I've been doing recently. It's also a reminder um, of the split attention effect and that was really useful. Daisy's thoughts about attention are clearly important too, especially when we're suddenly expecting students to do some kind of learning online. I've said this before and I'm sure I'll say it again, but this podcast really couldn't come together without the willingness of complete strangers. This time around, I contacted all five of these contributors out of the blue because they just happened to have tweeted about Teachers vs Tech. I was so pleased they agreed to take part. So here's today's first contribution from Julian. Hello, my name is Julian Gurdon. I'm an experienced English teacher and school leader from Dublin in Ireland. And I'm also the organiser of ResearchEd Dublin. And last year in October, Daisy Christodoulou was our opening keynote speaker at that first conference we had in Ireland. What you get from Daisy, what you expect, is clarity of thinking and analysis informed by cognitive science. She's not an ideologue, she's driven by cool logic. And so I was really looking forward to reading her examination of this vital issue, technology and education, 
which has actually become steadily more important for us in recent years. I think the main idea driving her book is the persistent overpromise of technology in education, what she calls the century-long cycle of hype and disillusionment. And I think most teachers will recognise this, including those of us who are quite techy and keen on technology. We have to keep asking ourselves about the financial and opportunity costs of it. As I say, she's not driven by ideology, and this is certainly not a hatchet job on technology. Uh, she's trying to sift through the noise and find what is truly valuable for teachers. How has the book affected my classroom practice? Well, honestly, in a sense, not at all yet, since I've been out of the physical classroom since I finished reading it. And what happened, of course, was that in Ireland, like most of the rest of the world, suddenly schools closed and we were suddenly deluged with technology in an attempt to deliver learning remotely. What that experience has shown me is the enduring importance of the teacher in the physical classroom. Uh, responsive teaching is drastically reduced online. Those micro-adjustments we make efficiently when we have pupils in front of us. And Daisy points out how experts in other areas, like nurses and firefighters, make very rapid assessments and adjustments on the signals they pick up. Well, we're not dealing with uh, life and death issues, but experienced teachers are a long way ahead of technology in responding to classes. But we do need to reach for tools when they enhance that expertise. I would just uh, sidetrack here to recommend very strongly another book, which is Marianne Wolf's Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, which examines also the effects of technology on learning nowadays, especially a kind of assault on attention. Our challenge is, I think, to deal with ever-increasing technology, uh, the world of the mobile pocket computer. And this book points out certain kinds of tools which might be helpful, particularly ones uh, driven by uh, adaptive learning. I'm experiencing that at the moment when I'm helping my young daughter, who's out of school, learn Latin through Duolingo. Uh, Daisy herself recommends uh, the app Anki for retrieval practice. I use Quizlet. That, that, that kind of tool is very helpful for technology and, of course, allows a student to work on their own without so much uh, help and much scaffolding from teachers. It is interesting that there has been a, a backlash in the recent years, particularly from parents about technology. And this is because they see their children constantly on devices and want schools somehow to be hermetically sealed off. Well, as Daisy Christoulou points out, that's not possible and not advisable. Our challenge is to use what's effective and not distracting and find some kind of balance. And I think this book is a really excellent analysis of that, well worth reading for any teacher. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I especially like the last point that Julian makes. It's a convincing reason to pick up a copy of this book, finding the right use of technology and making sure that it's effective. Next to give us their thoughts on the book is David. I'm David Gower, I'm an assistant principal and I've been teaching since 2007. My main subjects are film studies and media studies, but I also teach English as well. I always enjoy reading Daisy's books because they make me look back on my own training and realise that 
Um, I used to do all the things really that now she presents as being a bit of a waste of time and have little to no impact on students. But also it reinforces for me that the way I now think, the way I now teach, the way I now approach education um, is on the right lines. And uh, one of the things I take away from this book is around the problems with projects and project-based learning. And I've done quite a lot of that in the past, being a sort of media studies, film studies teacher, thinking that we would learn through doing, but I'm not quite sure that what students learned was actually what I wanted them to take away from the project or from the task. And uh, Daisy refers to Dan Willingham uh, in the book and talks about the fact that we need to think about every lesson in terms of what a student is likely to think about. And I'm not sure that I did that at the time. So that's a key takeaway for me. I think one of the other things that I took away from this book is the comments Daisy makes around how it's the prior knowledge that is the most crucial difference between students. That really struck a chord with me. Uh, the fact that she talks about it's not our most preferred way of learning that we need to focus on, but the best way of learning the content. Really, really interesting. And talk about the way in which we can present information using different media forms um, and that we give students information they need rather than setting them off on a potentially problematic process of searching and researching, in inverted commas, for the information which could end up down an avenue where they get the wrong kind of information. So I've really taken that away from this book as well. Some of the ways in which I'll use this book to help me in the classroom is around breaking down complex tasks to build better foundations for students. I think I've started to do this already when teaching film studies so that students are taking their time or I'm taking time with students to help them understand characters, character motivation, how those characters interconnect within the narrative and so on so that by the end of studying the particular film that we look at, um, you know, they're much more knowledgeable about those characters and can write with more confidence. But I think one of the things I've got to get better at is spacing out um, their learning so that we're kind of coming back to certain films and certain characters throughout the curriculum, throughout the course. And I think that's something I'll definitely use this book to help me with, thinking about how we can use quizzes that help students to to build that long-term memory. Also how we might use the kind of a flashcard approach to help them with their, their revision. And again, I've started to do that in my teaching, but I feel that this book's helped me to think more about that. It's also helped me to think about my role as a senior teacher and how I can support staff with their development and how I can share the content of this book or even the actual book itself with staff to ensure that they start to think about how what this book tells us can be applied to their own teaching. I think other people should read it, therefore, because if it's used well, technology needn't be something that we fear in education, but something that we can harness to improve teaching and learning. I think people need to read it because, sadly, there's still a lot going on with technology that isn't having the impact on learning that it should And if we understand how we learn, that's one of Daisy's key points in this book, if we understand how we learn, then we better understand how technology can be harnessed to have a real benefit to students and teachers. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks, David. I especially appreciate how you acknowledged how this book has helped you to reflect on what you as a teacher and a leader can change for the better, a really honest contribution. Next up, we're going to hear from James. My name's James Willits. I'm actually a marketing specialist for a tech company called Renaissance Learning. We're best known for our reading and quizzing programme, Accelerated Reader. Um, I came across the book as it was uh, referred to me by a couple of colleagues Uh, via Twitter, uh, some of those in the edtech industry and some of those uh, in the teaching profession. So after, uh, you know, four or five recommendations, I thought I'd I'd have a look and and get get stuck in. 
I finished a book about a month ago. Um, I thought it was a fantastic read, both from an external point of view, i.e. someone in the private sector who's working with the education sector, and of course from um, the education sector's perspective too. Uh, the books, you know, most importantly, it's clearly underpinned by well-evidenced and I'm assuming practical, you know, first-hand practice of pedagogical theories and, uh, you know, learning environments, etc. It focuses on what the unique needs and requirements are of every student, you know. They're not all alike, they're not identical, they all have different unique skill sets and different sets of knowledge which, you know, make them entire, entirely different entities for learning and how they construct their own knowledge. And Daisy does a fantastic job of, first and foremost, you know, exclusively acknowledging that from the outset. Um, and of course, all teachers know that already. Um, they need to tailor their lesson planning and their, their pre-lesson research. And then finally, their, their teaching practice to suit the unique needs and requirements of their class, of the pupils. So that's what's important first and foremost, and that certainly came out. Um, but then we explore how EdTech as a resource, and let's not forget, that's the most important thing we need to remember about EdTech. It's simply a resource, no different from uh, the blackboard, uh, going back to Victorian schooling times, uh, you know, to uh, the pencil and the ruler. You know, it, it's a... It's a resource for teachers and students to utilise to help uh, make their learning more effective and for teachers, hopefully, too, you know, more efficient and reduce their workload. If it can do those things, if it can boost learning and, and um, contribute towards academic attainment and academic progress, then it's, it's doing its job, as any good educational learning resource should do. Um, but what's interesting... Um, is the point of this acquisition of memory, you know, utilising our, our long-term memory um, and, and putting that into action, you know, by, by accessing that and, and what we know and how, you know, first teachers need to be aware of that. And I think that was pointed out quite clearly, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but in the new education inspection framework posted by Ofsted last year, they made a big point, they made a big push about you know, sequence learning, teachers need to start showing evidence during inspections of what children already know and can do and how the teacher is, the teacher needs to outline how they're going to get the child from what they can do with the current skills and how they're going to construct learning based on a certain subject, based on a certain uh, lesson or field, how they're going to construct the learning to achieve the child's next target. And, and using a variety of different pedagogies which suit the child's unique needs whether it be social constructivism working with partners or whether it be using um you know the benefits of edtech and maybe that could be a resource and one thing daisy does point out sort of throughout the book and certainly towards the end conclusively is this idea of you know formative assessment for you know continuously throughout um, a child's learning journey how important that is, how important it is for the, the teacher to understand, you know, <clears throat> how the child is developing, to see evidence of their development, how quickly they're progressing and whether or not they need help in certain areas. And quizzes, especially, um, and I know firsthand as, as I work for an edtech company who specialise in creating computer adaptive quizzes that, 
um, corresponds to the child's answers. So quizzes are a great way of identifying and illustrating just w what stage of progression the child is at. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, if a child gets a, a digital quiz question correct, then the quiz is adapt and they get more challenging. And likewise, if a child is struggling and is continuously getting questions wrong around the topic or, you know, in my case, it would be around a book that they've just read. If they're getting the questions wrong, the quizzes will, the quiz questions will get easier and it will start to paint a picture that actually maybe the child or the student hasn't interpreted or understood the current topic very well. Or again, in my case, it would be the book that they've just read. Maybe they aren't understanding and contextualising the book well. Maybe they need a little more practice. Um, and the teacher can use that information to dive deeper into what exactly is holding them back, what exactly they're struggling with. Is it the content of the book? Are they not understanding the narrative, for example? Or is it, is it more to do with uh, vocabulary acquisition, you know, phonics uh, development? Have they just not developed <clears throat> those fundamental reading skills sufficiently to be able to, to understand the book properly? And, and that's, of course, you know, as Daisy states within the, within the book, most importantly, that's, that's what teachers are trying to find out, you know. Teaching is, <clears throat> uh, is a journey of discovery to find out what exactly the pupil can do and what's holding them back in the areas that they're struggling with. And, yeah, I think the conclusive point is be careful with EdTech, you know. It's, there's, there's a lot of it out there now. Um, it's not, absolutely not a, a one-size-fits-all approach to, to learning, it has to be uniquely uh, administered for for the benefit of the the child, based on you know what they're what they're trying to achieve, what the teacher is trying to achieve for for their pupil and or class. So thoroughly enjoyable read, very informative. Again, like I said, from someone who's uh, an outside of the teaching perspective, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a keen education educational policy researcher but with regards to classroom based uh, practice I see you know not as much of it so it was good insight into how teachers would approach you know the, the learning uh, styles of different classroom uh, scenarios and how they would use and adapt ed tech to support that and that's you know speaking personally and professionally that's absolutely how ed tech should be used and utilised and, you know, if, if all teachers and head teachers and exec heads and multi-academy trust CEOs were aware that, you know, hold on, let's step back and see what the real issue is here for a demographic of disadvantaged students, for example, who maybe don't have books at home, so maybe, you know, rolling out uh, iPads to them isn't maybe the best solution because they can use those iPads properly if they can't be, if they can't be uh, supervised effectively, especially during school closures. So, but in the, in a classroom environment, utilising technology and giving them access to e-books and online quizzes, you know, is certainly something which, which could boost their interest and, and hopefully their academic development. So, airing caution to the use of, the proper use of EdTech, but at the same time, if used correctly and in some scenarios, the cases of, uh, you know, adaptive quizzes, I think it, it's it's you know it's a game changer, and as Daisy rightly puts, it's potentially bringing around a new uh, revolution for the education sector. So, as long as it's for the good and it's in the best interest of the child, then 
and then, you know, more of it. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I know we usually hear from teachers on this podcast, but I thought James' point of view would be an interesting one to hear. I thought it was especially pleasing to have someone invested in EdTech acknowledge that it's just a resource and not the be-all and end-all. Thank you, James, for adding your voice to the mix in today's episode. Next, we're going to hear from Richard. Hello, my name is Richard Clutterbuck. I am a teacher of religious studies. Uh, I've been the head teacher of two schools and I'm currently an associate senior leader of a school in Staffordshire and I'm also working with a multi-academy trust in the southwest and that's all part of my education consultancy role. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about Teachers versus Tech, the case for an edtech revolution and that's by Daisy Krista Delu. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. It would be terrible if I haven't. But moving forward, I'll just refer to her as Daisy, uh, to her on the safe side. I'm going to talk to you uh, today about uh, my key takeaways uh, on reading the book. I'll go into a little bit of detail at various points and hopefully uh, uh, talk to you about how it can be put into practice. Um, And you may well want to go out and buy it. I think uh, the first thing I'm going to do is start with the context in which I read the book. So I I was looking back through my Twitter feed and realised I'd bought the book on the 7th of March, pre-lockdown, but I only read the book on the 3rd of April uh, and when we were well into the lockdown. And with hindsight, I'm so, so glad I read it uh, after we went into lockdown because I read the book with homeschooling and home learning with tech really front and centre, both as a parent of two secondary school children, one in year seven, one in year nine, and also we're within the context of the schools I'm working with and how we can support students. Um, and I think with the forced or accelerated or forced entry into uh, technology leading the way in terms of teaching um, through the pandemic, uh, this book is such a relevant document and more so than before. In fact, I would say that the, the case for an EdTech revolution, which is Daisy's subtitle, well, a revolution has happened Um without our choosing and we're having to work through it and I think uh, what we're going through now is a giant audit as to what works and what doesn't and the danger is that when we come out of the audit the 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 outcomes will be measured by the gaps which we have uh, in the students knowledge and hopefully uh, the end game in terms of their SATs, GCSEs and A-levels and other level uh, one, two, and three qualifications is is going to be uh, how we find out and and hopefully uh, we can avoid that, and Daisy's books will certainly help us do this. Um, so the book is uh, has an introduction, seven chapters, and some really useful endnotes. And the conclusion of the book, which I think is a good place to start, uh, is con- uh, that technology will work with teaching. But in order to get there, we need to uh, dis- disrupt the influence of bad ideas. And if we do so, there are an enormous opportunities for technology, but not all tech. Uh, She's really, really clear about uh, the types of technology, such as adaptive learning systems, spaced repetition algorithms, and sophisticated data use. And the reason Daisy comes to this conclusion, it begins in chapter one. And Daisy is really, really clear that uh, rather than jumping to talking about tech, she talks explicitly about uh, the science of learning. And underpinning the whole book is 
the understanding, which is evidence-based, that how we learn best has been drawn out through cognitive psychology and its application to education. And one of the ways in which we gain knowledge is direct instruction. And what Daisy isn't doing in chapter one is saying that there is one way that we ought to be teaching. What she is clearly signposting is that in terms of our tech, uh, direct instruction or explicit instruction is a really effective way to gain knowledge. And actually, it sets up the rest of the book to show you that if we get the tech right, then this will enhance and help and support the teacher as the expert in the classroom hugely. So chapter one sets up the idea that we need to be looking for ways in which we can improve um, gains in knowledge in our long-term memory. And as teachers, the best way to do that often is direct instruction. And then looking at how tech has helped and hindered this. So chapters two to four, um, Daisy debunks uh, education practices and theories which have either hijacked decent tech or taken tech for education down rabbit holes like learning styles, plats or plets, uh, personalising learning. Uh, and what's really refreshing uh, as you work through the book is that she doesn't just debunk these these ideas. And she does it in a really, really careful, concise, considered way, but backed up by evidence. But she also offers solutions in there. So in Chapter 2, uh, we learn about adaptive learning platforms as a solution, uh, which could work as part of a carefully planned curriculum. In Chapter 3, we find out about tech, which helps build memory, not replace it. And in Chapter 4, we find out about quizzing programs, which help us uh, to get base knowledge and in, uh, improve our schema for the students and also help us as teachers to plan and organise our curriculum more effectively. In Chapter 5, um, digital devices come under the microscope uh, and the conclusion from Daisy at this point is either ban them or adapt them. And um, I think Daisy is on the, towards adapting them, but um, there is no getting away from the fact that these devices are designed to distract us. And it, I mean, that I, I kind of knew that, that there, is, there was a lot of science behind the devices which, uh, which the tech companies want, want people to use them in a way that means you flick around from one thing to the next. But boy, is it frightening. Um, and the fact that these, the, you know, a mobile phone, all of the apps on there are designed for you to flick in and out of them on a regular basis means that you've got to do something drastic to them in order to make them effective learning devices. And then when we get onto chapter six and seven, Daisy shows um, how the right tech can enhance the expertise around the teacher. And that's really, really refreshing. There is no doubt that tech cannot re replicate the expertise of the social aspects of learning, the tacit knowledge, the motivation, the support, the sheer knowledge and understanding that we have of the students who we teach in front of us. But we do have blind spots. We don't know everything. We we often get lulled into thinking that students know things when they don't. So spaced repetition algorithms can give us new insights into whether students have learned something or, and what I mean by learning it, they've got it in their long-term memory. Um, and uh, equally about comparative judgment as a, as a solution to assessing. You know, the, there are some assessment tasks which are great uh, but uh, uh, in terms of technology, but assessing open tasks like essays uh, is necessary, but it's hard to do it reliably, and it's even harder for computers to do it. But there are software programs that allow comparative judgment to work really, really effectively. And it's, you know, it's no secret that Daisy 
is a director of education at No More Marking, uh, and they're an online comparative judgment uh, uh, program. But she's not she's not trying to sell her wares. I mean, it just is is very very compelling. There's some great. Um, information on uh, when you're doing an audit on tech there's a brilliant set of questions there's some brilliant information on the types of uh, software which you should be using or could be using like Anki, Smarttick, Memrise, Duolingo, Hegarty, Quizlet, Upland, Math Circle, Timetable, Rockstars are all in there um, and uh, there are some really really choice quotes I'll, I'll just give you a couple of them I picked out from the book uh, these are the ones that resonated with me um, one quote says, giving students iPads to film homework assignments on YouTube prepares them for a high-tech economy as much as playing Hot Wheels would prepare them to thrive as car mechanics. And uh, we've all seen the homework set where you've got to go and do a stop-go animation of Macbeth and all that happens is the students more often than not uh, become very adept at using stop-go animation but learn very little about the key aspects of what they need to know about Macbeth. Um there is a another one that uh, says extensive evidence shows that nobody is good at multitasking. We are not capable of true multitasking. Instead, we end up task switching, and it makes performance slow and error prone. Uh, and I think when that that relates to chapter five and the devices, and I think that you know just resonates with me. But um, her final conclusion is. Uh, Again, I said at the beginning, but she says, if we can disrupt the influence of bad ideas, there are enormous opportunities for technology. And that brings me to the practical applications of this book. And and I think I would have said a few things differently, or I would have spoken differently about the book prior to the lockdown. But I think um, the book can avoid us making a lot of errors and, and causing problems that will, will come back to bite us in the future if, if we adhere to or listen to the messages that, that, that Daisy is talking about. Um, it's not it's not the, the panacea, but it's certainly a huge help. I think if you're a classroom teacher and you are working with your pupils online, then please do not forget that you are the expert and they need you in front of them, however which way that can be manufactured, particularly around teaching new material. But also, when you are setting tasks that you want the students to, to complete remotely, the book itself will give you a huge understanding of the types of tasks which you need to be setting and what's going to be most effective. Um, but it's really refreshing as a, as a teacher to be reminded how important you are in this age where often technology can be seen as the cure for everything. Um, but uh, as a uh, middle leader designing curriculum or senior leader or across a multi-academy trust, I think if you are looking at the way in which you can involve technology in, in the curriculum, this book shows you firmly how to build it in rather than bolt it on. And it, it makes sure you don't see one type of tech or one piece of software as the answer to all of uh, our ills. So... Um, I could wax on lyrically for ages. I've already gone on far, far too long. But uh, I think this is a great book. I thought it was a brilliant book uh, when I read the reviews and had a flick through it on the 7th of March. Having read it uh, in the middle of this lockdown and uh, with all the problems where we are encountering and I think we will encounter uh, with uh, the technology uh, and teaching limitations caused by remote learning, this book is now vital.
So I'm not on a retainer, but I think you should go out and buy it. And uh, thank you for listening. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I appreciate Richard really focusing in on our current situation when he was talking about the practical applications of the book, as well as thinking about what we can do in the future. Thanks, Richard. And our final reader contribution is coming from Sam. Hello, my name is Sam Franklin and I'm assistant head teacher at a secondary school in Norfolk and I'm responsible for progress and attainment and under that umbrella that is heavily reliant on assessment and so um, a lot of the work that I do is looking at a whole school approach to assessment in terms of strategy and policy and seeing how we can filter that down at a departmental level and a classroom level so that we can um, support our pupils to learn in the best possible way and also to support their progress throughout the um, time they spend with us at our school. And when I'm thinking about um, this book specifically, Teachers versus Tech, The Case for an EdTech Revolution by Daisy Pistadulu, I was really searching for a book which would help us to firstly embed the current uh, practices that we have and look at ways that we can maybe expand that and look at that differently. Um, and in this case, with a particular focus on technology. So when we're thinking about who this book would be useful for, who might find it relevant, I really do think that it's relevant for everybody, um, no matter what your role is um, within the school. So for example, the, the book starts with an opening chapter about Um, the science of learning and it really talks about some of the fundamental um, principles which not only underpin learning in itself but then um, ultimately reflect on um, the assessments that we use and the methods that we choose to use for assessing so actually regardless of the technology aspect of this book it's a really really good um, start point for anyone who is starting their journey about thinking about assessment in more detail or people who want to just understand that process uh, more and think about how it can become more effective at a classroom level so there's lots of principles in there which will be um, really useful no matter what stage of thinking about assessment you are at and no matter about your role within the school and And so those initial chapters are really, really important for almost setting the scene about where we end up going and understanding why the technology might then be useful later on, because we really need to actually understand the principles of good assessment and equally of bad assessment before we can really evaluate whether these technological approaches will be useful for us within our own context and actually will they fit with the things that we are trying to achieve in our assessment systems. For me, as an assistant head teacher in charge of assessment, um, I am not someone who considers myself to be particularly techie. I'm not someone that reads a lot of books and literature about um, the role of technology in the classroom. basically because it's not an area that I have looked into much before and it's not an area that I feel super comfortable in and so I guess it's one of those things where you you look at the approaches that maybe suit your existing biases or existing needs and so for me this was a little unusual to um, read a book explicitly about technology Um, and the reason I did so was because it was written by Daisy and I'm a huge fan of her work and our school has 
has um, put a lot of changes in place um, related to our assessment processes based upon the work that she's done previously. So that was my reason for picking up this book. But I think that it absolutely opens up that world, um, regardless, again, of, of where you are on that technology spectrum, whether you are you know, someone who really embraces new technology and you know, tries to embed that as much as possible in your practice, or whether, like me, you're a little bit um, more of a dinosaur with it and, and it's not something that you are constantly evaluating and, and adding into your practice. And as I said, it was um, useful for me from an assessment point of view. Thinking about um, the, the main kind of takeaways from it, I think that um, something that's useful for everyone to think about is the adaptive systems that are talked about throughout this book. So the idea of um, using technology to help us in our formative assessment of pupils, uh, firstly to maximise the efficiency of that. So it talks about um, different examples of systems that you might use like Duolingo, Memorize, Smartic, for example, Hegarty Maths. And it talks about some systems which in the very basic sense would help to make the process of collecting formative um, assessment simpler, use of technology to speed that up, and also the use of technology to speed up the, um, the what we do after we've got that information. So actually helping us to act upon that formative assessment in a way which streamlines that process for us. So for example, thinking about a lot of systems which would be able to give us very quick data on the gaps that people's had in their knowledge, the areas that they found more difficult, um, questions which were unanswered, for example. So in a very basic sense, it points us in the direction of um, ways in which we can be supported in collecting that data and then using that data to inform our next steps. But it also goes on another step and thinks even more creatively about what we can do with those technological systems to help us actually really hone in on those misconceptions. So rather than it just be a case of they got this right or wrong and that tells me that these are the gaps, it also talks about ways in which we can really target those misconceptions. So to move on to the idea of flashcards. So Flashcards won't be an unusual or a new thought for us. And I'm sure we're all aware of, of platforms like Quizlet, for example, where you can take that traditional flashcard setup that we would use with physical cards and apply that online. So again, there's efficiency um, there in terms of having a store of um, resources, a bank of questions, etc., that pupils can, can work through. But taking that one step further and thinking about designing technology to help us really use those flashcards effectively. So Daisy talks about uh, the moment of desirable difficulty and pulls on lots of research about this. It really made me think about this idea of the flashcards are most useful when you are seeing the flashcard at that kind of perfect moment between um, you forgetting it and knowing it. And in the classroom, that is extremely hard to achieve for one pupil, let alone for a whole class of pupils. And being able to use technology to support both ourselves and the pupils and being able to access that desirable difficulty moment um, is really, really important. And, you know, it goes without saying that that obviously gives us a really strong revision resource for pupils as well. And 
thinking about how we can use that, not merely for our key stage four revision, where we expect those pupils to to be learning to self-regulate and to revise in some capacity, but actually how we could use that all the way through our schooling system to, first of all, help support pupils to become um, more metacognitive in their actions, to be able to self-regulate more and really embed that at an earlier stage so that we can then uh, really maximise that by the time we get to key stage four. I think that that's a really useful uh, way of showing how technology can bring together lots of these different elements, lots of these different aspects and lots of these um, good fundamental ideas that underpin um, that good assessment. And if we take that, you know, another another step further, it also helps to um, ensure that we are looking at this spaced practice and um really spreading out that um that not not only the learning but the revision of that technology gives us um an extra way to help with that spaced practice because we can time uh, meticulously when we want the pupils to access certain resources that we might use and that might be as simple as um, a Seneca class for example timing that to be set as an assignment for pupils at a particular time where we know that isn't necessarily related directly to what they've just finished but for example we might get them to do that as um, a retrieval exercise equally we might be able to time that technology so that um, they're accessing their quizlet or they're accessing their seneca at the point at which they're going to look over the powerful knowledge which is then important to access the next topic or a new topic of learning so it helps to really tie together all of those approaches that I think we're becoming more and more aware of within the classroom but it's again about the efficiency of it and people's being able to access that independently but also our role in guiding them towards that using the technology to kind of mesh those two worlds together and I think that's really really important and really opened my eyes to the power of systems that largely was already aware of and in many cases are still using but actually wasn't using to the maximum capacity and maximum effectiveness. I think the other area which really springs to mind is is looking at comparative judgment. And again, it was the same case of something that we have actually trialled at our school and we've we've used in our school before and are interested in, in expanding further. But if someone has not come across comparative judgment before as a teacher or um, head of department specifically, I would say, it's a really, really good way of getting to grips with the idea of comparative judgment and thinking about how it can be used uh, most obviously in our subjects um, with subjective mark schemes and, and um, marking uh, matrix uh, where we have these very difficult decisions to make about trying to tie down a raw score to what is effectively a very subjective um, marking situation. And um, I would recommend anyone looks into comparative judgment in a little bit more detail. But for me, it was also interesting to see how that's changed since we ran the trial um, at the start of the year. So, for example, one of the things that um, we struggled with initially was getting the setup um, complete and the, the admin that was was um, involved in that. And they've looked at that and explained in the book, made me aware of this, that they've now moved away from the coded sheets, for example. That's still applicable and that's still the preferred method. But they've also looked at different ways of making that more applicable. So, for 
for example, um, allowing PDF uploads or um, actually picture uploads, which also means that it becomes a lot more workable, I think, for schools and also um, other subjects that aren't the traditional English, um, which a lot of the examples are based upon. Um, how other examples, other subjects um, could use this moving forward, which might make it a little bit more useful for them, um, for example, in uh, creative subjects like the arts. So that was really interesting for me. And I think, again, just opened my eyes to how we could push further with things that we had already um, looked into, but really hadn't maximised the effectiveness of. And I think that the last thing I would um, talk about is the idea about devices um, and some of the assumptions that we make about them. And I was guilty of these, again, as someone who hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about the role of technology. First of all, not presuming that our pupils are just um, this idea of like digital natives almost. I've seen uh, being discussed a lot online at the moment. And not presuming that our pupils are completely you know, expert at using these devices and therefore um, not kind of jumping ahead too many stages, thinking about really introducing these things slowly and modelling them and practising them as a skill that we would do with any other skill that we would teach them, not presuming that they can just jump straight into it. And I think that it's also um, really important to think about the idea of um, their attention being split. So um, a quote that I really like that I wrote down when I was reading it is this attention is the currency of learning and attention is a costly resource. Um, and when we're thinking about um, asking pupils to revise online, for example, then we need to be really cautious of some of the distractions that might come with that. Firstly, from the adverts that are built in potentially to some of the platforms we might be using, but also um, just the fact that they are using a device makes it more possible for them to also have various different tabs up with various different um, pulls on their attention span. And, and we know this um, as adults and particularly through school closure. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I've got my school emails up, my Twitter up, my um, piece of work that I'm actually, you know, actively working on that time. I've got books laying around. It's a lot easier to get distracted when you're basing all of your work around um, a computer. So I think it's really important for us to think about the pupils um, set up into these things. And on the same vein, in terms of attention being currency of learning, also, some of the moral kind of discussions around um, data and the use of data when we sign into these platforms and encouraging pupils to do that. And just really thinking about that, that gap between um, what we expect people to be able to access, first of all, and we're seeing this more and more with devices in the current situation, but also this idea about um, premium brands of these things. So, um, are pupils able to access, um, you know, the, the best that it can offer? And which of our pupils are the most likely to not be able to access that? Because the data that is tied up on that um, is really important because if we're asking pupils to access certain things, are we, are we asking them, or rather we should be mindful of how much data we're asking them to share about themselves in order to access that? Um, and that just really made me think there's no set answer for that at all, but it's also something that I haven't really been thinking about before reading this book. And I think that's something you could discuss in, at great length um, as a whole different section but it's really important to think about how that is going to affect the lives of our pupils and how that 
um, is considered when we think about applying some of these things in our classroom. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Another thorough and honest review from Sam, just the kind of thing that we really like to include on From Page to Practice. Thank you so much, Sam. Sam's back in the next episode talking about education exposed by Sam Strickland. If you've read the book and would like to contribute, then please do get in touch via the usual channels and I'll recap those at the end of the podcast. To sum up, it strikes me that there could be no better time to be releasing an episode of From Page to Practice on this book. Whilst there's an ever-present discussion of schools returning, we know realistically that some form of this is going to continue for a while yet. Anyway, once we're back, it will definitely be time to consider our use of technology in teaching and how we can be doing this better. Before we go, my final guest today would like to invite you to join in with something on Twitter, EduBookClub. Hi, I'm Alex Fairlam and along with Rosanna Hume, I run EduBook Club at EduBookClub1 on Twitter. This is a book club for educators to discuss different EduBooks. We're trying to encourage people to spend time reading and reflecting and discussing ideas which come about in these different edgy books. Each month what we do is we select a book that we're all going to read and then we set out a time when we're going to talk together on Twitter about the different themes and ideas which come from it. We also have a WhatsApp group which you can join and we have a Google Drive where you can also submit resources. The intention is that people will collaborate further by sharing those resources and using the ideas to apply them to different contexts. We really want to connect people together and connect with the author as well so that they can share their ideas and thoughts about the questions that we put to them. We think it's going to be a really good mechanism for well-being and delivering what we hope will be a collaborative community working together. If you're interested in joining us, we're at Edgy Book Club 1 and the book that we're currently reading at the moment is Retrieval Practice by Kate Jones and we'll be discussing Retrieval Practice on the 21st of the 5th 20 at 6pm and Kate will be joining us. Any questions that you have about the book, if you submit them to um, me, I'm at lambhearttea Tea via DM. And then what we can do is the top five questions will then tweet and discuss those as a community. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks for that, Alex. I think this sounds like such a great idea that I'm actually going to be teaming up with Edu Book Club to cover books that they feature in their chat on From Page to Practice. So look out for an episode on Retrieval Practice by Kate Jones in June. Coming up in two weeks' time, we have Education Exposed by Sam Strickland, followed by our third Impact Journal special two weeks later. I'm still trying to keep the schedule relevant and flexible, so I've not got further than that yet. Fear not, I've got a whole shelf of books to choose from, especially since I took advantage of a great John Cat discount and was kindly sent some books by Crown House and Independent Thinking. I can't wait to be able to plan the full schedule with these in mind. All that remains is for me to ask that if you enjoy the podcast, you tweet using hashtag pagepracticepodcast, you share with your colleagues, your friends and family, you can find me at From Page to Practice on Facebook and Page Practice Podcast on Instagram. And if you wouldn't mind popping onto iTunes to give a quick review, I'd really appreciate it. It's really helping me to reach a wider audience and I hope that will get more contributions for us as well as more people listening. I hope you're well. Stay safe. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. 
Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>